Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Seventeen years ago today, we were, for the first time, holding a service for GCA in this building. And if you look around this building now, it was very, very different 17 years ago. In fact, all of you who are sitting back there, you were in the garage. But we knocked out this wall for many, many years. I was told, you can't go through that wall. That's a load-bearing wall. You can't go through that wall. So we tried as best we could. We put French doors in there, and we had folks every week who would sit out there and kind of look through the doors and try to see what was going on here in the main room. And then one day somebody said, uh, you know, I, I think you can go through that wall, and a a fella in his 70s came in and looked at the building and went up in the attic and crawled around with Leon for a while. And then the week later, he came back and he had made a perfect model of our building using toothpicks <laughs> so that he could prove to me that he could go through a load-bearing wall. I said, if you're convinced you can do it, knock yourself out. And he and Leon did all that work and put a steel beam up in there that's supporting the roof and suddenly we had twice as much room and bought more chairs and we have officially now run out of room. There's no place else to expand. There are no more walls we can go through. But in recognition and celebration of our 17th anniversary, there are cookies, treats back there on the table. And for all of you who are both good kids and good adults, you're welcome to have some. They're good cookies. They're, it's good stuff. It's good. And so you'll want to indulge in a bit of that at the end of the service. You will notice that the very large chocolate chip cookie does say GCA 17th anniversary. I have to tell you what it says so that you can look at it and go, oh, that says GCA 17th anniversary because the young man I asked last night to write on the cookie, let's just say that was not his forte. <laughs> and he began writing and he said, two ends? Yes, anniversary, yes. <laughs> so he started writing, he got midway through it and he went, uh-oh. I said, what's wrong? And he says, I didn't leave enough room. I said, all right, we'll just cram it in there. Which he did. So what it looks like is, GCA 17th Anniversal Blob. So happy 17th Anniversal Blob to all of you. <laughs> two ends, preferably together. Yeah, yes, exactly. In the same place. Turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 13 is where we're picking up this morning. This will not be a surprise to you. I believe in God's absolute sovereign election. Oh, I know. What a surprise. I am convinced of God's absolute sovereign election, not because I'm a Calvinist, not because I adhere to reform theology and teach sovereign grace. I believe in sovereign election because the Bible keeps demonstrating it over and over and over again. The next three things that we're going to see here in the book of Mark is Jesus choosing apostles, which is really interesting because there are multitudes, crowds following him wherever he goes. We've been reading that repeatedly, that there are multitudes of people following him. But out of the multitudes of people who seek him, he chooses 12. And we know from John's gospel that Jesus says to them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And 
I ordained that your good works, that your fruit, that 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 was going to continue. I'm in charge of this thing. You are not. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Without me, you can't do anything. So that implies that Jesus, choosing his 12 apostles, is being done by absolute sovereign election. But then right behind that, we're going to see the Pharisees who have watched Jesus doing these miracles, who see these crowds of people following Jesus, who are afraid for their own jobs. They're worried about their own ability to keep their control over the people and to keep the money coming into the coffers. They're concerned about that. So, of course, they have to stop this Jesus momentum that's going on. And whenever anybody disagrees with you theologically, it's still true today, as true as it was in Jesus' day. When people disagree with you theologically, as often as not, they will go right to, well, that's of the devil. Well, you're, you're teaching doctrines of devils. I can't tell you how many times folk online have tried to criticize me for teaching reform theology, for teaching sovereign grace theology, and they say, oh, oh, Calvinism, that's of the devil. It's of the devil. Well, the reason that that criticism doesn't resonate with me and doesn't change what I believe is because that criticism has been around since the time of Jesus. And Jesus is doing nothing but good. He's doing nothing but telling people the truth, and he's healing people, and he's feeding people. He's doing nothing but good, and the Pharisees, in order to save their own skin and in order to save their own jobs, end up saying, he's doing these miracles by Beelzebub. That's of the devil. This is of the devil. And Jesus is going to wind them up in their own logic. But then Mark very specifically goes right from their denial of him to Jesus beginning to talk in parables. That's even more interesting because his apostles, the ones he has chosen, ask him, why do you speak in parables? In other words, just tell us. Don't tell us things that we have to kind of sort out or interpret. Just tell us the truth. And Jesus says the reason that he spoke in parables is he said to you, It is given to understand the mysteries of heaven, but to them, it's not given. So rather than allow that they might understand, I speak to them in parables so that seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear, which is a completion, a satisfaction of prophecies dating all the way back to Isaiah. And so it is prophesied that there were going to be people who though they had physical eyes, though they have physical ears, they're not going to understand the things of God. Why? Because God said so. Okay, so let's put all these things together. Jesus chooses apostles. Jesus hides the truth from those that he doesn't choose. And those people he doesn't choose hate him enough to call him of the devil. There's the distinction. There's the difference. Why do you understand anything? Why do you know anything about God? It's God's revelation. He gives it to us. It's God who has revealed these things to us. Does he reveal that to everybody? No. No. There you go. That's election. It's that easy. I've told you before that I had a conversation with my dad probably a year before he died, a little less. And he was understanding the things of grace. And he, had, and he was starting to encounter the things of grace. And we were riding in the car together. And he said, you know, I don't understand that election thing. So I said to him, Dad, it's easy. Do you believe you're saved? And he said, well, well yes. I would have to say I'm, I think I'm saved. I said, okay, who saved you? And he said, well, God, God saved me. I said, okay, good. Did he do that by accident or on purpose? He said, well, I believe he did it on purpose. I said, okay, there it is. That's election. God saves some people and he does it on purpose. You got it. My dad said, oh, I I get that. (laughs) I understand that. 
And that's all sovereign election is. God saves some people, and he does it on purpose. God's divine, eternal purpose is being served out by the way that he divides between the saved and the lost. And it is up to him, the quick and the dead, the language of God's ability to judge and differentiate permeates the Bible. Whether that's Noah and seven others, and then God destroys the whole rest of the world, and yet Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Whether that's God choosing Abraham and his offspring to be his particular people, the people who he says over and over again, I will be your God, you will be my people. Why did he say that to Israel? Why didn't he say that to anybody else in, say, South America? Why didn't he say that to Eskimos? Why didn't he say any other people group on the planet? Why didn't he say to the Egyptians, you're my people? Well, he didn't say that. In fact, what he did was he delivered Israel from the Egyptians, took them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then he drowned the Egyptians. Okay, that's very, very different. That's God being gracious and kind to one group of people and then destroying the other group of people and doing it on purpose. All I'm getting at is that this is not a new thing. This is not a novelty, the idea that God picks and chooses. It's an idea that's been around ever since the beginning of the Bible. It's just the way God is. It's just the way God acts, the way God behaves. It's a characteristic of God. And so if you're going to stick to what the Bible says, and you're not going to have an imaginary God in your head, if you're going to stick to the only God who is demonstrated anywhere in the Bible, then you have to admit that he is a God who picks, who chooses, who elects, and that he elects certain people while passing by others. This morning, we're going to see Jesus acting exactly that way because he's the son of God. He's one-third of the Trinity. They have one mind. They're accomplishing the same plan, the same story between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are all involved in the electing of certain individuals and the passing by of other individuals. So no surprise that when Jesus got on the planet, he would also demonstrate that ability to pick and to choose and to elect and to hide the truth from the people who aren't chosen. And I know that sounds harsh to people who, especially those people who are not chosen. They hear me say, Jesus hides the truth from you. And they think, no, that can't be how it is. God has to be very, very fair. He has to give everybody an equal shot. God has got to give everybody fairness. Have you ever heard the argument Well, love to be loved has to be by free will. They have to choose to love him. Bible doesn't say that. Bible says we love him because he first loved us. Does that mean everyone? Did he first love everyone? Well, no. So even the love argument is upended by the reality of God's electing grace because he put his love on us in choosing us, and that's the only reason we love him back. Left to ourselves, none of us would love God. Left to ourselves, our sinful flesh would naturally rebel against God. So it was absolutely mandatory. Given how sinful and depraved and hard-hearted we were, it was mandatory for God to choose some people or else nobody's going to heaven. I, I very much like the phrase from Elder Ward where he said, if God had not chosen some, then heaven would have none. It's really just that basic, because none of us deserve to go. None of us are good enough. None of us can obligate God. So therefore, it has to be God that does the picking and the choosing. That's why we say and keep emphasizing and driving home that this election is an election of grace. That God chooses people to live eternally with him in his heavenly splendor. And he does that choosing by grace because there's nothing within the people that would be good enough that they would get God's attention where he would say, well, it won't be heaven without you. So I'm going to choose you and then I'm going to bring you to heaven because you're just so darn good. 
I just said the word darn, and I think we all know that a child of God would never say the word darn. But that was sort of an inside joke for those of you who know about what's going on on Facebook. Okay, fine. The point is the same. There is nobody who ever obligated God. There is nobody who was ever good enough that God said, I must choose you now based on how good you are. Instead, election to salvation is always, always an act of grace. Every day that you get up and you know anything about God, act of grace. Every day that you get up and you know your own name, you're still in your right mind, you're still fine, act of grace. Every time you sit down to eat some food, there are plenty of starving people on the planet, but you've got food. That's an act of grace. He didn't have to give you food. He's under no obligation to give you food. There are plenty of people on the planet. He hasn't given food. But he gave you food. Act of grace. There are people who have no clothing, people who are struggling to cover their bodies. We have closets full of clothes. Act of grace. All I'm getting at is there is no facet, there is no element of your life that is not an act of grace on God's part, and you ought to be eternally, constantly, thoroughly grateful for the fact that he has been that gracious to you and continues to be that gracious to you every single moment. And if on top of all that you also have the hope of eternity, grace. That's just all grace. Grace, 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 grace grace that's why for 17 years we've been grace christian assembly that's why our website is salvation by grace because this is all an act of grace so while while the unregenerate will argue well that's not fair and while they will shake their fist at jesus and say he does things by beelzebub Those people, those sinful folk who are actually chosen, elected by God, who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, those people know that it is all the kindness, the goodness, the mercy, and the grace of God, and we worship him and we thank him for the grace that he has bestowed on us because we know of all people that we don't deserve it. Far too often folks try to say, well, you Calvinists, you think you're better than everybody. No, 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 we know we're worse than everybody. And we know that a very good and a very gracious God chose us despite how bad we are. So now let's start reading. Thus endeth the introduction. That was a great intro. Oh. Well, I just want you to see this. I want you to see Jesus choosing And then I want you to see the unchosen shaking their fist at him and saying that he's of Beelzebub. And then right behind that, Jesus hiding the truth from them. That's all election. All right, starting at verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and he summoned those who he himself wanted. Okay, do not ignore the contrast. Look back just a couple of verses. We find out that Jesus withdrew to the sea, starting at verse 7, with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing, and they all came to him there's all these seekers there's all these people they want to be healed they want to be fed they want to they're all coming to him what does he do he went up to a mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted look at the contrast so he summoned those who he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That's why he chose these 12. Why 12? Why the specific number 12? Because there's 12 tribes of Israel. And he's going to tell them that they are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he would send them out to preach. He's going to train them for the next three years or so, 
And then when he's gone, they are the ones that are going to carry the message of what Jesus did, of what Jesus said, of what Christianity is all about. They're going to do that so that you and I here today know something about Jesus. We know it because they're the ones that told us the story. And they're to go out and proclaim the story. And on top of that, on top of just going out to preach, to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the nickname of What would the Greek pronunciation of that name be? Anyone know? Take a shot at it, Steve. Boanerges. Boanerges. Fair enough. Do you know what that means? That means sons of thunder. Do you know why Jesus gave them that nickname? Because Jesus has a sense of humor. That's why. A little something I share with him. It's one of my few Jesus-like characteristics. Yeah, he called them sons of thunder. Because they wanted to call fire down from the sky once they, once they figured out, oh, even demons do what we tell them to. Oh, man, and we heal sickness, and we've got, we've got all this power now. They saw some of the people that weren't following Jesus and said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? They figured, well, you know, fire was called down from the sky in the Old Testament. Elijah did stuff like that, so... So you want us to do the Elijah thing? Should we call down fire? Man, this would be good. Jesus said, you don't know what kind of men you are. I didn't call you to do that. So he nicknames them as a result of them saying that he nicknames them sons of thunder. And yet, though John had the personality, the characteristic that would lead Jesus to call him a son of thunder... John ended up writing more about the love of God and the love of Christ than anybody else in the New Testament. He became known as the apostle of love. Something changed in him. He went from son of thunder to the apostle of love. That's grace. That's just grace. So, okay. So he's got Simon Peter. He's got James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So he chose those 12, an interesting mix of people, tax collectors, fishermen, sons of thunder, and in the middle of it, a zealot. Do you know what that means? He was a terrorist. Well, okay, you could go so far as to say terrorist. This is a man who was so convinced that he was going to throw off the yoke of Rome, off of Judea and Jerusalem, he was ready to start an insurrection. He was ready to start fighting the the political fight and the battles in the streets. This was a zealot. And Jesus picked him. Isn't that interesting? Because you would think a guy like that, you'd go, well, no way. He's like, Jesus, I mean, Jesus, Lamb of God. No way a zealot's hanging out with him. And yet that's who Jesus picked. Tax collectors? No, they're the worst of the sinners. We hate tax collectors. No, nobody would. Jesus picked him. Fishermen, uneducated. That's who Jesus picked. He picked the people he wanted because those were the people he was going to teach so that they could carry the message that we still proclaim. It's like he had a plan or something. Almost as if he had a plan or something. Exactly. And he came home, says verse 20, and the multitude gathered again. So he got away separately to himself. He chose his 12. He comes home. What happens instantly? Multitudes. Crowds again, crowding in around him. To such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. So he and his 12 don't even have time to eat because of the crowds. 
And when his own people heard this, that's a reference to people of his family. When they heard of this, that he was back and that he was drawing these huge crowds, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he's lost his mind. He has lost his senses because they see him leading what looks like to them like some kind of cult group. And everywhere he goes, there's masses of people following him. And his own people, his own family think, we got to put a stop to this. He's gone crazy. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, their reaction to the crowds, their reaction to all the people who were following him and the miracles he was doing, they came down from Jerusalem and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Do you understand what they're saying? Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, he's doing miracles. We can't deny the miracles. Okay, yes, lame people are walking, blind people can see. Okay, we can't deny that. How do we explain it? Oh, I know. He's doing it by the power of the devil himself. The devil's giving him the power to do this. There, you still need to come to the temple. You still need to bring your money to us. We still have spiritual authority over you. Don't be following him because what he's doing is of the devil. Now, Jesus is going to tie them up in their own logic. Because the statement, he does these things by Beelzebub, that's a silly statement. But it's really demonstrative of the extent that human beings will go to to deny Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They don't want to know about Jesus. They don't want Jesus to be Lord. They don't want him to have all authority in heaven and earth. And they'll go to any extent to deny it, even to the extent here of saying, well, he's of the devil. And Jesus, I find it very, very interesting, rather than turning to them like I would do, rather than turning to them and saying, What a bunch of idiots. Just go away. He actually demonstrates to them the complete silliness of their argument. He says this first. How can Satan cast out Satan? Okay, that's a really good point. Because he's going around casting out demons, and he's healing all these people, and he's saying, so you've got people who are possessed of Satan, And then you say that that same Satan works through me to drive out Satan? How does Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. And, verse 24, and if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. So if there is this demonic realm and it's divided against itself, we don't even have to fight it. It'll destroy itself. Because it'll keep fighting with itself. No kingdom can stand that fights with itself internally. So that makes no sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He's not using the word house here like a physical structure or a house. He's talking the way we would say the house of Windsor. We're talking about a dynasty, the way we would talk about the house of Tudor. And so he's saying, how can a dominion, a ruling class, how can they be divided against themselves and still think they're going to survive? They're going to close ranks around themselves to survive, and yet you're claiming that they are fighting internally with themselves and that I, by Satan, am driving out Satan. If I'm of Satan, then Satan is schizophrenic and driving out Satan by Satan. That makes no sense. A kingdom cannot do that. A house cannot do that. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. So you're accusing Satan of such foolishness? That he hasn't figured out that if he fights against himself, he's going to damage himself. And yet you think I'm doing this by Satan. Now, recognize what Jesus is doing. Once he eliminates the Satan possibility, there's only one possibility left. 
Once he eliminates the idea that I'm doing these miraculous things and driving out demons by Satan, once they have to conclude that it's not by Satan, they know for sure it's not by human power because none of them can do it. That only leaves one option. Then you have to admit, I'm of God. That it's the power of God that is doing this. And therefore, I am who I said I am. I am the son of God. Well, they can't accept that. They can't allow that. So they have to just keep insisting on the most illogical conclusion. He's demonstrating how illogical that conclusion is, but they're forced to keep insisting on the illogical conclusion because the only other conclusion, they can't come to that. They can't draw that because if he is the son of God, they're out of a job. If he is the son of God and has that kind of power and authority, when he says to them that they are whitewashed sepulchers, that they look good on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, well, if he's the son of God, he's right. And they are dead men. So they have to keep insisting on the most illogical conclusion. If Satan has risen against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one, now he's going to explain what's really happening in verse 27, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Big picture. The earth is referred to as being under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. Jesus is saying, I have entered into this realm, this world, which is controlled by Satan. And in order for me to come to draw people to myself, to give them everlasting life... They are all under the dominion, the control of Satan. In order for me to grab some of those brands out of the fire, I first have to make sure that the strong man, Satan himself, that he is bound up. Once I've got him bound up, I can then plunder his stuff. You get the picture? So he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So truly, verily, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, now as soon as he says that, he sets himself up as the judge of the quick and the dead. If I'm not doing these things by the power of Satan, which I've already proven logically can't be the case, then there's only one other conclusion you can draw, which is I am the son of God. And if I am the son of God, I am the judge of the quick and the dead. I get to say, who is saved and who isn't, and you have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and I have the authority to say to you, I'm never forgiving that. I will never forgive you for what you just did. You just said that the Holy Spirit is satanic. And since you don't rightly discern the things of God, and since you took it upon yourself, your egocentric self, to say that the Holy Spirit of God is satanic, I will never forgive you of that. Now, I like the fact that Mark included Jesus saying, men are going to be forgiven for a whole host of sins, including their blasphemies. Because I, for one, have not lived through this whole life without a few blasphemies in my life. Anybody else or am I here alone? Really? The rest of you who didn't raise your hands, you liars. You. <laughs> the truth of the matter is every idle word. And, the, and you're either going to have to give account for that and be judged for it. Every idle word. 
Every silly thing that ever fell out of your face that you thought nobody heard, God heard it. God knows it. It's all recorded. He knows everything you've ever said or thought is either going to be judged and held against you or forgiven, utterly forgiven, never to come up again. So here he is demonstrating his authority to the Pharisees by saying to them, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. Who can say that? Who can get away with that? Only God can say that. There's no human being walking the planet who can say that. Micah can try it, and I won't care, because it's Micah. People can try it out. People can say, well, you know what I think. I think heaven's like this, and I think heaven does that. If you're not the son of God, your opinion, pardon me, doesn't matter. Only what Jesus, the very Son of God, says actually matters. And he's demonstrating that to the Pharisees by saying, I know what's forgivable and what's not. Why do I know that? Because I'm the one that will do the forgiving. And I'm the one who will do the judging. So not only will the sons of men be forgiven whatever blasphemies they utter. Oh, that's good news. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And they know that's exactly what they just did. So Jesus has just said to them, you're never going to be forgiven. Again, how can he say that? He can only say that if he has the authority to know that he's the one that does the forgiving and the saving. Sandy can say to me all day long, I don't forgive you. I don't know what I would do to Sandy that would make him that angry, but he could say to me, I don't forgive you. And that would be sad, but I would think, okay, that's Sandy. But if Sandy said, eternal judgment is yours because you've come up against me, I'm going to say, you're a nutbag. (laughs) There's no way that you actually know that. You don't have eternal authority. You don't have eternal control. You're just a human being. But when Jesus states, that will never be forgiven. Not now, not in the age to come eternally. That's an eternal sin. You have committed an eternal sin against the Holy Spirit. He can only say that if he's God. And fortunately, he's God. Fortunately, not fortunate for the Pharisees really fortunate for us because we're really really guilty he says we can be forgiven for all that so why did he say all of that to them verse 30 mark tells us because they were saying he has an unclean spirit so it's very clear why jesus said all that to them and why he said you're never going to be forgiven It's because they said, you have an unclean spirit. They called the Holy Spirit of God satanic. And his mother, remember a few moments ago, we talked about his family that thought he was a little crazy. And his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him. And they called him. And a multitude was sitting around him. So they said to him, behold... Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. They're concerned about the number of people that he's attracting to himself. They're also very, very concerned about the Jewish leaders who are very against him. And they understand that he's probably going to end up being killed for this. He's going too far. He's making it too extreme. Have you been charged with that one yet? You're too extreme. Sure, that God thing, but you take it too far. (laughs) Jesus' own mother accused him of that. You've lost control of this thing. So the multitude sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he said, I cannot deny my mother. If she requests anything of me, I have to give it to her. That's why people should pray to Mary. (laughs) 
because I can't deny Mary my mother. Is that what he said? No. No, he says, who's my mother? That flies in the face of way too much of Rome's theology. Rome's theology says, number one, that after she had Jesus, she remained a virgin perpetually. This is the mother and brothers. Where did the brothers come from? Well, because she didn't remain a virgin perpetually. She went on and had other children. There's no question about the Greek language, the Adolphos. These are actual brothers of Jesus. We know that when we read Jude, the brother of Jesus. We know this. The multitude is sitting around him. They say to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he answered them and he said, who are my mother and my brothers? So he did not jump up from the table and say, mom's here. I got to do whatever mom says. By all means, bring your petitions to mom and then she'll bring them to me. And because I can't deny her, you can know that your prayers are going to be heard. That is typical Roman Catholic theology. It's just not biblical theology. Biblical theology is Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And looking around him on those that were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. In other words, he looked at the people that were with him, the people he chose, the people that were attracted to him, and he said, this is my family. My family, my mother, my brothers. He defines them. Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So he sees us as family, and he is not ashamed, much to our fascination, our astonishment. He's not afraid to call us brothers. He's the son of God, the only unique son of God. He's the only one, the firstborn of the father, the only holy lamb of God. That's who he is. And then there's you. And the distance between you and him is enormous. And you don't have the right, you don't have the authority, you don't have the power to declare in and of yourself that you are now in his family. You don't have that right. But he declares that those that God gave him those that were chosen before the foundation of the world, those that he came to redeem, those that he drew to himself, those that he chose, those he calls brothers and sisters and mother. They're collectively part of the family of God and fellow heirs with Christ of everything God has planned for Christ. That's just grace. That's unending, unerring grace. Notice Jesus didn't say, look around you. You see all these people and you see the ones I've chose? They're neighbors. He didn't say, they are second cousins. He didn't say, I'm the landlord and they are renters. No, he picked one of the most intimate human relationships that exist. Father, brother, Mother, sister, let me ask you a question, Kyla. You like Caleb? Okay, Caleb, you like Kyla? That's really good because you know what? For the whole rest of your life, that's your sister. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it. You can't alter it. In fact, no court can change it. In fact, it's just a genetic reality your brother and sister, permanently. Okay, now the tough one. Kyla, you like your dad? Yes. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Caleb, you like your dad or do you want a beating? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you like your dad. Okay. He's going to be your dad forever. There's nothing you can do to change that. You get one dad. You only get one in life. He's it. You're stuck with him. 
Okay, God knows that's how it works. God understands that that's how it works. And yet, he took upon himself the name Father. You get one. And if he is your father, he's your father forever. That cannot change. And if Jesus is your brother, just like we talked about the brother-sister relationship a minute ago, if he is your brother, you can't change that. That's a reality. He's going to be your brother forever, eternally. And you didn't form that relationship. He did with people who he knew were blasphemers, with people who he knew were sinful degenerates, with hard, deceptive hearts. He knew that. So he had to come get us because we can't get to him. So he came to the planet. He came to this realm. He bound up Satan so that he could plunder Satan's domain and choose for himself some brands that are plucked up out of the fire. He chose us. That's grace, 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 grace. That's why I believe in election. Again, not because of a, a systematic that I was taught. Not because I found it in some of the writings of the reformers, but because it's actually constantly in the Bible. And you got to know that. You got to see that. And if you see that, and if you understand that he was under no obligation to save you, and yet he saved you, you should never stop saying thank you. Amen. You should constantly be thankful to him, reverence him, be in awe of him, worship him, because he did all of the things you can't do. Amen. Okay, let's wrap it up here. Real quick, chapter 4. Since I uh, gave you the whole introduction, we'll at least get into the beginning of the parable, and then we'll let Jesus define it next week. And he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. He created a natural amphitheater. He got in the boat. He went out from there. He now can address the entire crowd that are standing on the shore. Who knows how many people deep, but if they all sit down on the shore and he speaks from the water, they can all hear him. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them, listen to this. The sower went out to sow. And it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seed fell into good soil, and they grew up and increased. They yielded a crop, and they produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, the implication is not everybody's going to understand this. Not everybody has ears to hear. Oh, you may have physical ears, but you're not going to understand what I'm getting at. But verse 10 says, And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. Why? Why parables? Why don't you just come out and tell people stuff? They're following you. They're seeking you. Why don't you just clearly tell them stuff? And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So Jesus basically said, you can comprehend it. You can understand it because God has given you the revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom. But he didn't do that for everybody. 
So for the ones who haven't got the ears to hear, to them I speak in parables so that they won't understand. That's what he said in verse 12. In order, and this is fascinating, he's now going to say that their hardness of heart and their misunderstanding and him leaving them in the dark is a fulfillment of scripture. This is something that dates all the way back to Isaiah, and we're going to look at it in a moment to close the morning. And he said, because this is something that is already prophesied about these people, I'm not being hard-hearted or mean or cruel by not teaching them. It is prophesied already that they're not going to understand. All I'm doing is leaving them in that not understanding state that it was prophesied they'd be in. So he says to them, in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and are forgiven. Oh my goodness, Jesus says, I'm speaking to them in parables so that they won't understand, so that they don't think I'm obligated to forgive them. I'm leaving them in their sinfulness. I'm leaving them in their depravity. It's not given to them to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. And therefore, since they don't understand, I'm not going to speak to them plainly. Because if I do, they might think that they understand and expect me then to forgive them. I'm not going to do that. That is absolute sovereign authority on display. That is election on display. And you know where it comes from? All the way back in Isaiah. Let's go back and look at it, and that will be it for the morning. Turn to Isaiah 6. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, I'm going to have to talk fairly quick because I know you're all anxious for cookies. See, I felt that all the way up here. I, I could feel the sugar longing coming all the way up here. Chapter 6, starting at verse 1, one of the more popularly preached passages in the Old Testament. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. Seraphim, those are angelic creatures, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me! For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Anybody who gets even a glimpse of God understands immediately the difference between themselves and God. Instantly you see the distance. And if you get even a glimpse of the holiness and the righteousness of God, you will immediately recognize your own undoing. And so he says, woe is me. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, I don't want to extrapolate too much on that, but notice that Isaiah recognized that he was not even righteous enough to speak to that God. I'm a man of unclean lips. How do I talk to him? It took the intervention of an angel and God forgiving him to even allow for the conversation. First, his lips were touched. His sins were forgiven. Now there's a conversation between him and God. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. I can't even tell you the amount of ordination services and calls to the ministry that I have heard quote that verse. Like it's a good thing. And they say, well, God said, who shall go for us? And I said, send me. Like Isaiah stood up and said, yes, I'm, I'm ready to go, God. You need me. Boy, I'm a team player. You can count on me. And then they say, well, and so Isaiah was taught the gospel. And he went and he told the people of Israel. And he, and he proclaimed all these wonderful things. Look at what God sends him to tell the people of Israel. It's not good news. God says, who's going to go for us and tell the people of Israel this bad news? And he says, I'm here. Send me. And he said, go and tell the people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Do not understand. Oh, you can keep listening, but you're not going to understand Keep on looking, but do not understand. Go and render the hearts of this people insensitive. Render their ears dull and their eyes dim. And lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. It's exactly what Jesus said. Because it was already prophesied of those people that they weren't going to understand. And for what reason? So that they would be against him. So that they would hate him. So that they would put him on a cross. God is not just being capricious here. He's not being arbitrary here. He's making sure that his son is going to fulfill everything that he sends his son to do. So the message from Isaiah to these people is... You're going to keep listening. You're going to keep looking, but you're not going to perceive it. You're not going to understand it. Your heart is insensitive. Your ears are dull. Your eyes are dim. For what reason? So that you don't understand. So that you don't hear with your ears or understand with your hearts and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, for how long? How long are they going to be in this condition? Well, I can tell you they were still in that condition when Jesus walked on the planet. That's why they would say things like, he has a devil. Because they could see the miracles. They could see the demonstration of his teaching. They could see his power and authority. But they didn't get it. They couldn't get it. And so they would say, well, he's of the devil. But that is exactly what God intended for them Until, verse 11, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. That means until Jerusalem is is wiped out. Until houses are without people. And the land, the land of Israel, is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Isn't that a happy, feel-good message? So go and say that. That's what I'm sending you to say, Isaiah. So that is exactly why Jesus would then say, when they ask him, why do you speak in parables? He said, to you it's been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables in order that while seeing, they may not see and not perceive. And while hearing, They may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. That is absolute, utter sovereignty. That's a power and authority you can't fight with. If he says, you're condemned forever and I'll never forgive you, you're condemned forever and he'll never forgive you. But if the one who has that kind of power and authority says... That if you come to him, you'll be forgiven for all your blasphemies. That's incredibly good news because he has the power and authority. And he has the ability to pick and to choose. And if he picked you, if he chose you, don't ever take that for granted. Never take that lightly. 
recognize what he has done for you and spend your life glorifying, honoring, and worshiping him because he, number one, deserves it, and number two, because of all the very good things he has done for you eternally, that he would call you sons and daughters and brethren of Christ. Those are titles we don't begin to deserve, but that's what he, by his grace, has given us. You feel it? Yes. You understand it? Yes. And that, by the way, is the only Jesus you find in the Bible. Even if you don't like it, if you think to yourself, well, that's not fair. Jesus walked around saying stuff like that. You know what? I'm never going to tell them the truth. I'm going to cloak it in parables so that they don't understand. If that rubs up against your theology or your concept of who Jesus has to be, tough. <laughs> It doesn't matter what you think. Your opinion means nothing. The only Jesus you find in the Bible talks just like that. Because that's what he's like. Because he's the sovereign and he's in control. Got it? Got it. All right. Any questions? If there are no questions, then say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.